You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of theology today by continuing to examine soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. We're in the midst of discussing the Christian's armor. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, Paul commands us to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Last week, we quoted the Reverend P.G. Matthew, who noted that we are to, quote, put on the armor once and for all. We are supposed to sleep with it, eat with it, work with it, come with it, and go with it. We then looked at the first piece of that armor, the belt of truth. Dr. Spencer, I assume you want to move on to the second piece of armor. Absolutely. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, we're told, quote, Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, unquote. So the second piece of a Christian's armor is the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate is a piece of armor worn over the chest to protect our vital organs, the heart, lungs, and so on. It's clearly an important piece of defensive armor, and in this case we are told that it consists of righteousness. But the question that should immediately come to mind is, Whose righteousness? Well, I don't think that my righteousness would provide all the protection I need. Nor would mine. In order to get to heaven, we need a perfect righteousness. But praise God, that is what we receive when we are united to Jesus Christ by faith. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 19, the apostle makes the point that all of us are wretched sinners. And he concludes in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, with the terrible statement that, quote, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That statement totally destroys any notion someone might have that we can earn our salvation. Yes, it does. But Paul immediately follows it up with a few of the most wonderful verses in all of Scripture. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, we read, quote, But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah indeed. That which was impossible for us to do, God has accomplished for us. We have a righteousness that comes from God. It is God's righteousness, not ours. And it comes apart from law, Paul says, which simply means that we don't earn it by keeping the law. And Paul says that the law and prophets testify to this righteousness. Now, the law and prophets was a common way of referring to the Old Testament, which speaks of Christ and his redemptive work from beginning to end. And it's important to note that it was Paul who wrote this. Before his conversion, he was a Pharisee, which was the strictest sect of Judaism. If anyone could have claimed a righteousness of his own, you would think it would have been Paul. In fact, Paul uses himself as an example. In Philippians chapter 3, he speaks about how zealous he was for keeping God's laws. 
He even says that he was faultless with regard to legalistic righteousness. But then in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, he wrote, quote, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Well, if Paul considered his righteousness to be rubbish, that doesn't give much hope to most of the rest of us. It wasn't meant to. If we trust in ourselves, there is no hope. As he summed it up in the passage I just read from Romans, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, praise God, he also wrote that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That is the glorious gospel of freedom. Jesus Christ redeemed us from our bondage to sin, and we are justified in God's sight based on the perfect, unimpeachable righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is all by grace. We merit eternal damnation. But because of God's great love and mercy, we receive forgiveness, justification, and adoption as children. And all of this is secured through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, we must abandon any hope of saving ourselves or of meriting anything good from God. And we must throw ourselves completely on his mercy, trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. The Reverend Matthew summed it up well when he said that, quote, a Christian who imagines he could stand before God in his own righteousness of good works is a Pharisee. In God's sight, all our righteousness is like filthy garbage. A Christian's breastplate is the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ received as a gift by faith. And so the second piece of our armor then is the perfect righteousness of Christ. Yes, it is. But that isn't the whole story. It also includes our own righteousness, imperfect though it always is. Well, can you explain that? Yeah, the perfect righteousness of Christ is the only thing that can gain entrance to heaven. But as we have labored to show on many occasions, anyone who has been born again is a new creation in Christ Jesus, and he will be sanctified. He will be made holy. Not perfectly in this life, but there will be holiness there. And that holy living provides protection against the attacks of Satan and the world, as we discussed last week in relation to the belt of truth. That makes sense. If we strive to live an upright life, it will protect us from many different kinds of harm. It certainly will. When we sin, we open the door to more sin. Many lies, for example, are told to cover up sin. And many sins are committed to cover up previous sins. Sin feeds on itself and leads to a downward spiral. The best way to avoid temptation to sin is to avoid sin itself. That may sound strange, but sinning virtually always leads to a serious temptation to sin more. Yeah, King David is a perfect illustration of that. After committing adultery with Bathsheba, he lied, and he eventually had her husband killed to try and cover up his sin. Yeah, that's an extreme example to be sure, but it's a good one. 
There are many more examples from our own time, and I don't really think we need to go over them. I'm sure everyone listening can think of times in their own lives when one sin led to others. Unfortunately, I'm confident that you're right about that. Christians do sin, but they can also repent and move forward. True, heartfelt, biblical repentance is a wonderful thing. It breaks the spiral of continuing sin. And that's a very good thing. Sin always produces guilt and misery, but true repentance then brings freedom from the guilt and misery and the ability to move forward and not continue sinning. Are we ready to move on to the next piece of armor? Yeah, let me read the complete sentence we've been looking at. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, we read, quote, Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That's a somewhat strange phrase at the end of that sentence. We are to have our, quote, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, unquote. I think that needs some explanation. I agree. There are a couple of possibilities for what that means. Let me quote from Matthew again. He wrote, quote, As Christian soldiers, we need boots to march in, boots that give us sure footing, that we may take a solid stance and not slip. We are told those boots consist in the readiness of the gospel of peace. The exact meaning of this statement is somewhat obscure. It could be the boots are the peace we have from God, received through the gospel, unquote. And Matthew then quotes from Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where we're told that since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's wonderful news, and certainly having peace with God provides solid footing for the Christian life. Many of man's troubles are born out of his lack of peace. He runs after money, power, sex, drugs, all kinds of things in the hope of finding ultimate peace or of numbing himself from the pain caused by a lack of inner peace. Yeah, that's very true. But the verse also could be taken in a slightly different way. Quoting from Matthew yet again, quote, It could be that the boots consist in our readiness to proclaim the gospel that gives peace to sinners. Well, that also makes good sense. Perhaps the apostle had both meanings in mind. I think that's a reasonable supposition. We receive peace from God, and we should always be eager to share that peace with others. Both of these things strengthen our own faith and help to make us able to stand firm. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, we see the fourth piece of armor. Paul wrote, quote, In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now that statement sounds a bit strange at first blush, since it is by faith that we are united to Christ at all. Why would Paul need to tell us then to take up the shield of faith? Because our faith must be active to be strong. It's like our physical body in that respect. If we stop exercising, we lose strength and stamina. I certainly know that to be true, especially as I get older. And so do I. But faith is the same. We can't just say that one day we believed Jesus to be Savior and that settles it for the rest of our life. So now we can forget all about the topic and go on with life. That would be wrong on many levels, but for one, our faith would grow cold and useless and we would not be able to withstand temptations and doubts. Quoting from Matthew again, he wrote about the shield of faith, saying that, quote, This speaks of the large shield that protected the Roman soldier's entire body. 
It was made of wood covered with hide and bound by iron on top and bottom. When dipped in water, this large shield was able to put out incendiary missiles, which consisted of arrows dipped in pitch, set aflame, and fired. And our doubts and the temptations that are a natural part of life are all flaming arrows that come at us. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And Matthew points out that if we have knowledge of and confidence in the Word of God, our faith will be able to extinguish those arrows. But that knowledge and confidence require diligent effort. We must study the Word of God. We must pray. We must attend a good church. Listen carefully to the sermons and go home and put them into practice. We must seek out and enjoy good Christian fellowship, which will build us up in our faith. There have certainly been times when I have felt weak in my faith and was lifted up and strengthened by reading the Word or praying or going to church or having good Christian fellowship. Yeah, that's true for all of us. In fact, when we don't feel like reading the Word or praying or going to church or getting together with other Christians— That is precisely when it is the most important for us to do so. We are in a very dangerous position when we are feeling like we want to just sit alone and feel lousy. Now, some people are more prone to such an attitude than others, of course, but we all know what it's like to feel down and to not want to do much of anything. But that's a dangerous place to be. It gives Satan a foothold. And so the right response is to exercise self-discipline and do exactly the things we don't feel like doing at the time. Read the Word, pray, go to church, have good fellowship. Exactly. Those are all means of grace that God provides to build us up in our faith so that we can stand against temptation. Understanding the Word of God allows us to know when Satan is attacking us with lies. For example, think of a very new Christian. Well, new Christians are usually quite zealous and joyful in their faith. Yeah, that's true. But sooner or later, they sin. And then the devil is likely to come put wicked thoughts in their mind. He will come and say to you, If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't have sinned like that. But if we're spending time in the Word, we can say, No, get away from me, Satan. Christians do still sin. In fact, we're told in 1 John 1 verse 8 that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And I am genuinely grieved that I have sinned, but I have repented. And I'm told in 1 John 1 verse 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And James tells us in James chapter 4 verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's a wonderful promise. If we are submitted to the authority of God's word and doing our best to walk in obedience and to resist the devil, then he will flee from us. Yeah, that is a wonderful promise. But in order to meet the condition, we need to be in the word of God. We need good Christian fellowship, and we need to avoid the fellowship of wicked people. As we're told in Psalm 1, quote, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. 
Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That again is a great promise from God. He watches over the way of the righteous, obviously meaning that he watches over them to bless them. And when God blesses you, you are truly and eternally blessed. But having strong faith takes work. It requires that we put in the effort to use the means of grace that God provides. Very well. We've now seen four of the six elements of the Christian's armor. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, and the shield of faith. I look forward to discussing the last two, but I don't think we have enough time left for today to start a new one. So let me remind everyone that they can send questions or comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We love seeing your comments and responding to your questions. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media. And I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine the doctrine of sanctification, and we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.